Welcome to the Discover You podcast, where we take a deep dive into who you are and why you do what you do. If you're ready to learn how to be a better you, you're in the right place. And now, the host of Discover You, James Hooper. Well, welcome to the Discover You podcast. This is your host, James Hooper, and I'm so glad you decided to join me today. And you are in for a treat. I am sitting in the office of the District Bishop of the Southwest Texas District Pentecostal Church of God, Bishop Bob Jane. And I'm here to interview him. We're going to learn some about his story and his life and uh, whatever he wants to talk about. Welcome to the podcast, Bishop. Well, thank you. It's been a uh, pleasure just getting a chance to sit down and visit with you this morning after you said, hey, can we talk? Yeah, let's talk. So here we are. I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. We actually moved here down to the Austin area, which is in the Southwest Texas District. By the time this airs, it'll be four years we moved down. We moved down in March of 2015, and we moved down expressly to reopen a church that was in South Austin, and Bishop Bob Jane and the district board asked us to reopen it. Actually, I asked them if I could, and they said yes. I was looking for an opportunity, and so we've gotten to know Bishop and his wife, Eileen, over these four years, and uh, I, I dare say we've become friends, and uh, we enjoy being around them. So I wanted to sit down and spend a little time with him, because I really feel like that as we learn more about different people's stories, different people's lives, that we can actually glean something from him. So, Bishop, you're originally from Pennsylvania, uh, around, what, the Scranton area? I was born and raised about um, eight miles northeast of uh, Scranton in a little town. That at that time, it was called Winton, but people said we had to upgrade a little bit, so we went to a town of Archibald and combined two towns at one, but it was a coal mining area, and I was raised there uh, all my life until I left for the service in 1968. You were raised in church. I understand that. Uh, I know I've met your mother. She came down for Christmas this year, and we went out and got to meet her. She's just one of these sold-out, old-fashioned women of God that just loves God. And uh, so you were raised, and it was a probably a fairly strict upbringing, am I right? Oh, yeah. I was raised in classical Pentecost. And uh, at that time, if you were grinning, you were sinning. That means that uh, you couldn't go bowling, you couldn't shoot pool, you didn't go to the movies. Everything was a could-not but we were raised strict, raised in a Pentecostal home. Mom and dad both, I always tell people when I preach, my father never sent me to church. He always took me to church. My dad was a deacon for 55 years in his church and was very much active in the church and taught us kids to be active in the church. Any program going on, we had to be there, like it or not. Then after a while, you almost despise going because you're there all the time. But then you get to a point where you fall in love with the Lord, and you do the same thing when you get older. We grew up similarly. I grew up, our household wasn't as strict, but I grew up around that sort of thing. But I understand that when you left for the service, you kind of uh, wandered away a little bit. You want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Um... When I went to the service, I was first time I ever left home. The only thing I ever knew was church, and I was I was born and raised in the Peckville Assembly of God Church up in Peckville, Pennsylvania, and uh, that's the only thing I knew. So I went to the service. Uh, I served in the Air Force from '68 to '72, and uh, 
I, I served the Lord all the way up until I got to England. I had a three-year tour over there, and uh, I went to a small little church over there. I walked the church. It was like two and a half, three miles one way. We walked there, and uh, it was almost like, what are you doing here? So I felt, well, that's not going to cut it. So I started going to the base chapel, and that was just a service for everybody. So it didn't matter if you're Baptist, Methodist, Catholic, it didn't matter. Y'all come in and uh, sit down. And I just got turned off. And then, of course, you get with your buddies. And I, I ran for about three years from the Lord. I knew uh, God had a call on my life. Uh, he had called me back in uh, Tucson at my first uh, base at Davis Mountain Air Force Base. And the Lord called me at the ministry. I remember calling my mother and the girl I was engaged to. And that didn't work out too long because she wasn't going to be married to a preacher. But uh, I told him I really felt God had called me that night. And then, of course, then I got overseas, and I spent three years over there, and I just went a little bit crazy. But I had praying parents, and I had praying grandparents. My Grandpa Williams, my mother's father, uh, he was a mighty man of God, and he prayed for me every day. He made me miserable when I was sinning. And uh, my Grandma uh, Jane, she was the same way. She prayed for us every day. Of course, Mom and Dad did. But... Um, it didn't matter what I did. I couldn't get away from my heritage. And finally, I just, uh, I met my wife, and uh, she had just gotten right with the Lord. She was raised in a Pentecostal home, but uh, more of on the English side of it. And uh, anyway, I met her, and I had a date with her one night, and I picked her up one night to take her to church, and I told her, so, well, I'm going down to my buddy John's house, and we're going to uh, visit with him for a while while you're in church. And she said, no, if you can't go to church with me, I don't want to date you. And I thought, huh, who do you think you are, girl? I'm an American, you know. <laughs> you need me. But uh, she didn't She didn't fall for that one at all. But anyway, uh, I went to church with her that night, and God got a hold of me. And I heard this person crying out to God and just praying and uh, just letting God move. And I thought, who is that? And then come to find out it was me down on my knees just praying out to God. So that was in uh, December of 1971. And uh, the rest is history. Here we are. <laughs> As you gathered, Eileen, his wife, is uh, she's, she doesn't consider herself a Brit anymore because she's lived in the States longer than she was in the United Kingdom. But it's it's interesting how... God kind of orchestrates. He orchestrated you meeting Eileen, and she kind of pushed you a little bit into pursuing what the call is. That's just that's awesome. If you if you ever get a chance to meet Eileen, she's she's a force of nature. She's just uh, she's interesting. She's funny. She's uh, you know she just says what's on her mind. So you never have to worry about what she's thinking. So when I, when he said that, she said, well, you know, if you're not going to church with me, don't bother dating me. She was, she was straight up with him. You served for a while, and she actually had two sons from a previous marriage. That really didn't go over well with folks back home, did it? Oh, no, that, that was the taboo back in 71, 72. We married in March of 72, and... Uh, we had prayed about this because I knew how my parents felt. I knew how my church felt about it because back then uh, you didn't get divorced. It didn't matter if you were Catholic, Protestant, uh, Baptist, it didn't matter. Nobody got divorced back then. And if they did, it was, oh, shame on you, you know. But I met Eileen, and she had been separated and divorced for like four years and had two boys she was raising on her own. 
And uh, I met her on a blind date, and I just fell in love with her. And uh, I said, well, let's get married. She said, what are your parents going to say? I said, well, what can they say? You know, I said, everybody makes their own decision. At this time, I was 21 years old, and uh, we went ahead and did it. We went for counsel, talked to the, uh, the major that married us, had counsel with him. And he said, well, just pray. Ask God to show you if you're supposed to or not, but before you get going too far, because once you get go too far, you've already got connected, you're, you're together, and you say, man, I don't care what happens, I'm not going to break this off. But we prayed about it. We came home. I, I sent her home in, um, in June of 72. I came home in July, and uh, we weren't home, but, oh, my word, probably about six months, and all of a sudden sort of like all hell broke loose in, in a church. And it wasn't everybody, but it was the people that were very religious. And they they call, literally called me uh, a whoremonger because I married a woman that had been married before. Some called us, uh, said she was a used woman. Others had told me that uh, I had done the unpardonable sin, which I knew better, but this is the way they were. And I had a group of people tell me that'd be good. They said, now we've known you since you were a little boy, and probably the best thing for you to do is to um, annul the marriage and send your wife and the two boys back to England and just live a celibate life the rest of your life. And I said, ah, I don't think so. Uh, I had me a woman now, you know. But anyway, now I had two boys, and those boys did not have a father, and I was their first father image. And uh, to this day, in fact, next month, March 25th, we'll be married 47 years. And the two boys, my uh, oldest boys, Nick and Bruce, uh, that I adopted them in 1973, they, they don't know they're not Janes. They don't know they're not Bob's biological kids because I've raised them. And we moved, and we got away from some of that junk. We changed churches. Uh, we went to two, three different churches, and first thing we walked in, and said, hey, you're awful young to be having kids that old. What happened here, you know? And it seemed like everybody was concerned about who I had married. So, in, in fact, even family members, family members wouldn't have nothing to do with me, uncles and stuff like that, because I had a used woman is what they called it. But we made it, and uh, God gave us a peace. So we just got a peace with ourselves and didn't care what anybody else thought. Is that how you made it through that time? Because there's a lot of people that if they faced that kind of adversity, they would just bail for, out of church and just forget about the whole thing because so many people were judging them, so many people were not being merciful and loving them. Is that peace that you got, is that how you guys made it through it and stayed stayed with God? Well, you know, we were young Christians at the time. Uh, Eileen had just gotten saved, uh, I guess, about three, four months before I met her. And that's when she said, listen, I've messed my life up to this point. I'm not doing it no more. Either you come along where I'm going with God or just call it quits right now, you know. And uh, But when we got back home, uh, I had been raising it long enough to know that you don't run from adversity. Okay, and uh, I ended up uh, just standing firm. My dad, I remember my dad standing on the sidewalk in front of the church one night when people had come down on us real bad, and dad crying and saying, Bob, don't leave the church, don't leave the church. And I said, well, dad, I'm not leaving God, but I'm not going to stay where you're looked at as a downcast. I had boys, that, in fact, that was a family in the church, told my sons, that the two little boys, that at that time they were, five and seven, I think it was, and told them that they were bastards. Now, I don't mean to be rude on here, but that's what it was. And this is in church. So we had to deal with my kids and tell them, look, you're, you're just as good as anybody else and so on and so forth. 
And uh, they both grew up that way. In fact, they're both in professions that they're doing excellent in. But uh, they had a rough time. And then they had to deal with the issue when they went to school. The teachers, even the teachers mocked them because they had the British accent. So they changed that real quick. And uh, I have to believe it was the foundation I had from when I was a kid, taught in church. You stick with God. You stick with him. You don't go to the right or to the left. You go straight forward. Now, I was, I have to say this, I was very strict because I was a young father. At 22, you normally don't have uh, kids five and seven years old. So I didn't want anybody to think I couldn't do it. So I was extra strict on those boys. But make uh, be fair, the other two boys I had between me and Eileen, I was just as hard on them. And today, I'm 69 years old, and I look back at it and think, boy, I wish I had never done that because I raised them with a fear of God instead of a love of God. And that made a big difference in my boys later on in life. God still, he redeems things in our lives. You know, that's one of the things that I've learned, and I always try to teach people, no matter what we've done, the things that we've regretted, you did some, some great things by taking those boys and adopting them and raising them as your own. But we always do things in our past that we, we regret we've done. But God can redeem it. I've met all four boys. I know them like your oldest. Uh, is Nick the oldest? Okay. Well, the second oldest, he lives not too far from us over in Seguin, and he's a, an elder at his church. Uh, his youngest son is actually pastoring the church that he pastored before he took this position here. So God's redeemed it, and the family is still strong, still growing together. You had the family, and then you had two two more boys. So you had Bruce and Nick, and then you have... Aaron and Stephen, so uh, Stephen's actually youngest, so Aaron's the pastor of the church, so not the youngest one, but so you had the boys, why did you move to Texas from Pennsylvania? Well, we were, um, we were starving in Pennsylvania, <laughs> things, things were tough, I was working uh, two different jobs, I was working as a contractor, uh, building and stuff like that, and when work went off there, I went driving 18-wheeler, and back and forth, but anyway, we were living in poverty, really. And I was just sitting there one night. I had to be the Lord because um, I just looked at my wife. We're sitting on the sofa together. And I said, let's go to Texas. And she said, what? I said, let's go to Texas. At least get out. It was 22 below zero. Snow was blowing. I said, this is crazy. And I said, we're not living here anyhow. We're not hardly existing. So we decided to, I, I put an application to come down here to Ingleside area and work for Brown and Root as an electrician. And uh, they hired me over the phone. I came down, but uh, I was never satisfied. I knew God was calling me, but I didn't want to preach. Uh, really, at the time, I didn't like people in church because the way they treated us, I just felt don't need them. Of course, I'm sure that's wrong, <laughs> but I said, oh, God, forgive me for that. But uh, I just didn't like people because they were just mean, you know. But anyway, I came down here as an electrician, worked for them for 15 months. Everything was working great, and then the job shut down. And uh, then I got a job with the local, at that time, the regional electrical company. And they hired me to drive truck, haul transformers. And it was during that time that uh, I met John Novell, a pastor friend of mine. I started going to his church. And at that point, we, uh, God started dealing with me. And I talked to him, him about it. And I just started doing my studies while I drove truck. At that point, God allowed me, and uh, we had made a plan for, in August of 87, so we were going to go full-time for the Lord in 88, and sure enough, we were able to go debt-free by September of 88, 
I went full-time and worked with Brother Norvell at, in the church in Rockport. In the meantime, driving truck, doing studies, I worked and got my associate's degree and my bachelor's degree in theology and working as associate pastor, plus driving truck 40 and 50 hours a week. When God calls you, you can only run so far. And I felt I had got to the point where I'm miserable. Uh, every time we got to a point we'd be financially set, the company I was working for would fold. And I really got to thinking, Lord, I'm bad. This is bad. I'm bad news for these folks, man. Every time, because uh, God, when he wants you, he's going to draw you. The Bible says the gifts and callings are without repentance. In other words, God, when he, when he calls you, you, you don't have to answer sooner or later. So we did. And at that point uh, in 1988, I parked the truck and never looked back. Here it is, 31, 32 years later, and uh, God brought us to the church in uh, Ranzas Pass, which is our first pastorate. And God bless us. I didn't have a clue what I was doing, but we took the church from 35 to right at about 400 people in a small town of about 8,000 people. Here we are now pastoring pastors. And it's amazing how God can promote you and take it places when you just say, okay, God, here I am. One of the things that I want to point out is a lot of times you get placed where God wants you because of situations that you think it's not God doing it. It's like you were starving there you were in Pennsylvania. You weren't making a living. You were working two jobs. So the logical thing is go where the money is. And so you found a job in Ingleside, Texas. I mean, you go from Pennsylvania to Texas, which is you know, Ingleside's on the coast. So you go from you know all the 20 belows and all this other stuff down to the humidity of the coast and you go down there but that's where God had your purpose and had your destiny to launch you and it's interesting that if we will just allow whatever happens in our life if we just allow the things that the situations that happen realize that we're not out of God's plan that God is working the plan the plan that he has for us he's working it and he, he just led you right into to finding your calling and finding your destiny and to lead pastors and become the the district bishop. So you took the church in Aransas Pass. What year did you take that church? I went there in, um, in fact, July 2nd was my first Sunday there in 1989. And it was so new to us. It was just, we didn't know what to do with ourselves. I just knew, oh God, you gave me a church. <laughs> now what am I going to do with it, you know? so. <laughs> but it, it happened and there we were, 22 years and six months. See, God put him in a position of something he'd never done before, something you'd never done. You grew up a deacon's son. You didn't know anything about the pastoring. You, all you knew was the pastor was this guy that preached and stuff. But God placed you in a position, and it's interesting when you when you follow God's call, you follow what God's designed for you to do, you always step into something you don't know how to do it. So you have to rely on him. Talk about some of the things that you had to do there at the church, you didn't know how to handle, but God talked you through it or walked you through it. Well, when I first went to my church in 1989 there, the church was in, was in the hole. I didn't realize how bad they were doing. They hired me on because the pastor had resigned. We went, and we had already tried out, not tried out. In fact, we never did try out for the church. I just filled the pulpit for two weeks in a row because the pastor, one week he was on vacation, the next week he was very ill. So... Uh, I filled the pulpit for him because I was only 12 miles away. But we went there, and our first three weeks there, we never got paid because there was no money. And uh, they did pay the, uh, gave the pastor 
uh, his his salary for the month to, so he can move out. And then we got moved in there. But I found the church to be very much in debt. And I thought, my word, what are we going to do here? Well, I, I just called the church to prayer. And I said, now, look, folks, we're not spending money on anything anymore. We're by no quarterlies. We're not going to buy no Sunday school materials. If we want something, we'll make it ourselves. Get creative. But everything we have, if you want to have a yard sale, we'll do whatever. We're going to get out of the hole so we can be a functioning church. And one of the things I, I want to add here is that I found out that they had stopped giving to missions. And they were using missions money that was designated missions money. They were using that to pay the light bill. And I said, we'll go without lights before we shut people off that are missionaries on the field waiting and expecting money from us, and we shut them off. So I made the church pay that money back first, and then we paid off the debts that was at the church. And people started having yard sales. One lady started making dresses for little girls. One old, one old boy was in his 80s. He cleaned up his backyard and took a, a whole truckload of um, metal to the, the yard and got uh, money for it had an old wheel from a fishing boat that was in his backyard. He had flowers planted in, just picked it up, shook it off, and he stopped it for a, a sandwich and a coffee in, in the town next to us. And there was a shrimper came out and looked at us and said, man, what are you doing with that uh, wheel? And he said, I'm taking it to the dump. He said, man, that's perfect. That's the one I need. And the guy gave him like $100 for it. And he was going to the junk with it. So he came back and he was so happy that he was able to help pay for it. But instead of four months that I had called for to get the uh, church out of debt, we did it in four weeks. And then we just started going like that. And everything we did, we did cash. But I told the people, this is your church. This isn't my church. This is your church. Let's take ownership. And everything we did, we laid our hands to. God allowed us to do it, including moving through uh, that and then processing through building a brand new church. Because my old sanctuary would only seat at, when I went there, was about 60 to 80 people. 80 people, I say, it, uh, funeral style. That's bumper to bumper, shoulder to shoulder. But then normally it's 60 to 80 people on the outside. We remodeled the church twice, and I did all the building myself and uh, made it bigger. Then finally we outgrew that. We moved into our gymnasium that we had, and we made that a sanctuary for about 18 months. And we built the 500-seat sanctuary. And I built that by myself, my son, and the men from the church. And we did that debt-free. And that was miraculous in itself. But working through those things, because he said, I said, we will not put the church under bondage. We will not make God look bad. I always had a problem when people say, well, the church don't have no money. And I thought, that's a slap in the face to my God who has everything. All I have to do is believe him for it. So we just believe God for it. And every time we had need of money, it was there. And how it came, and uh, people have to understand this, when you're faithful to do what God's called you to do, and God says, build this, then he will provide for it. And my people started getting raises. One lady came in, she paid a tithe check one Sunday of $9,000, blew me away because we didn't never seen that kind of money in the church. And I said, what in the world happened? She said, Brother Jane, she said, uh, we found out we were in a lawsuit. We didn't even know we were in a lawsuit, but we won. <laughs> and she got $90,000. So, so praise God, you know. And another lady, she she retired and took her 401K, and she just paid tithe on her 401K, and that gave us another boost. So as we went, we started seeing God do miraculous things, and I had a whole bunch of new people come in that never knew anything about tithing and offerings. And when I taught that and I showed them how what the Word of God said about it, 
I had some people that came in. They were brand new to the to the Christianity. They used to come into my wife and uh, my secretary, and they would pay their tithe on Thursday, so they could get a blessing before Sunday. But that's the way they believed. But we seen God just supernaturally take over, and we built that whole church debt free, and walked into it with no bills, and uh, it was to God be the glory. But it happens, but I didn't know anything about that kind of stuff. And every time I needed it, God would either show me or somebody would come along and be talking and I'd pick up out of the conversation. Oh, well, we can do it that way. So why reinvent the wheel? <laughs> I want to go back to you when you first came in that you saw that they were taking missions. Hey, guys, I just wanted to break away for a quick moment to remind you there are two different ways that you can actually help sponsor this podcast. Number one, you can go to the website for the book, the Discover You book, and then the website is discoveryou-book.com, discoveryou-book.com. There's a link that will send you to Amazon, and for $9.99, you can have your very own copy. Secondly, in the description of this podcast, there is a link that you can click where you can go and set up a monthly monetary donation. Any amount would be great. Any amount would help us. So please consider sponsoring and help joining those that are already supporting us. I appreciate you guys for listening. And now back to the episode. Money and paying the bills with it. And you've, you've always been really strong on missions. And if I'm not mistaken, there's a story about Nick and the Parkmans. Why don't you talk a little bit about that, Tell about Nick and his relationship to the Parkmans. Yeah, Brother Parkman is our missionary to the, was missionary to the Philippines. Now he's supervisor for that area. But my boy, when he first got saved, and Nick got saved in 88, him and his wife, Rachel, and uh, they wanted to, uh, they were at that time, they met David through the church in Rockport when David came to visit. And Nick started giving offerings towards missions for David Parkman, but then he moved to Houston and got out of the PCG uh, that we're a part of. He continued to do that. Nick and Rachel supported David monthly every year for 30 years. David told me, uh, Nick never, I didn't even know what Nick was doing it, but David told me, he said, your son Nick has never failed to send the money every month. He said, churches some churches didn't send because they didn't have it, but Nick and Rachel sent one every month. And uh, one year, David was coming home, and I was going to pick him up in at, at the Houston airport, and Nick knew we were going there. So the church got together. Nick asked me if he could donate his car. He had a uh, Ford Expedition, a big old green thing, and it was in excellent condition. And Nick only owed a couple thousand dollars on it. He wanted to give it to him, but he had to get the thing so he'd get the title so we took an offering in the church we paid that car off for nick and then nick gave me the title to it and when we went to houston to pick david and paula up from the philippines uh, we picked them up in that car and coming down the road david said no brother bob he said now tomorrow he said could we go take a look for cars and i said well you could i said but uh what about something like this? And he said, oh, we couldn't afford nothing like that, Brother Jane. And I said, well, 
the keys are in the ignition right now because I was going down 59 out of Houston back towards the coast. And I said, this car is yours. I said, the, the church bought it for you. Nick wants you to have it, but the church paid it off. So this car is yours. When we get home, we take, I'm me and my wife are getting out. You can drive it home. And David cried all the way down the highway. He's a big crybaby anyhow, but he cried all the way down the road. But Nick has always had a heart for missions. And he started with that and we got us, and it wasn't that he was, sold out, you know, died in the wool believer like his dad was, but he just had a heart for missions. And to me, that's why Nick is where he's at today. He's vice president of, of the company that he's working for, a big uh, international company. And I believe the reason why he's blessed and lives in a beautiful home is because he put God first and took care of missions. If you don't take care of missionaries, I always told my people, you can give in the missions offering or God can send you to Africa. Which one do you want? So <laughs> they used to give pretty good. <laughs> it's interesting because that is, even though you got him when he was, what, five years old, you instilled through just, you may not have set him down and said, okay, Nick, this is what is important. But he just saw that and he caught that vision. And so for over 30 years supported missionaries that he wasn't even in the denomination that they were part of. Right. Uh, so, you know, that's just, that was a story that I, I knew and I wanted for people to hear. You're pastoring Aransas Pass. Things are just going great. I know there was an instance one time you got really involved in the community. There was a, well, there was an article or somebody told you about the, the police department needed a drug sniffing dog. You decided that the church needed to get that get the police department a dog. Talk about that little incident. Well, what, what had happened was... Um, they needed a search dog because they had a, um, the policemen were coming off a uh, shift change, 11 o'clock at night. They walked out the back of the police department and they heard this pinging. And what it was, they, they didn't know what it was, but come to find out there was a guy across the street, uh, across the field in a, in a, behind a house, shooting at them. There was bullets flying off the back of the dumpster. They started returning fire. They, they, the guy ran away. And they couldn't find him. Well, the school district had a, a drug dog, but they couldn't, according to the laws, whatever they had, their policies, they couldn't let them use it. So they had to go all the way to Beeville, which was like 55 miles away, go to the prison and get one of their dogs, bring it back. By that time, the guy's long gone. It was a big thing in the newspaper there in a small town, how things happened. So my son, uh, Aaron, uh, was not just my assistant at the associate at the church, but he was also the chaplain for the police department for the city. I told him, I said, let's call the chief and let's have dinner. So we took him to a nice restaurant for lunchtime, and I asked him why he did not have a drug dog or a search dog. And he said, well, the city said he can't afford it and they won't afford it. I said, well, how much does one cost? And he said, well, he said, a good search dog is about $7,000. He said, they, uh, I said, where do you get them from? He said, from Slovakia. Uh, they're born and bred for just that, he said. But for two thousand dollars more, he said you can get a drug dog slash search dog. And uh, in other words, uh, I can use them for searching for people that are lost, senior citizens wander off, children, or I can do drugs with it. I said, well, for nine thousand dollars, you have yourself a pretty good dog. He said, for nine thousand dollars, I can have the top of the line dog. So I said, well, can I buy you one? And he said, uh. Oh, ah, oh, ah, oh, what? Uh, well, I don't know. Well, what about church and state? I said, well, I don't, I don't buy that church and state thing. I said, that's got a totally different meaning to me. I said, uh, this is my community. You need something. I have the money. 
in our church. I said, we want to do this as a blessing to our, our community and especially to the police department. So he said, uh, sure, I'd love to. So um, I went back and I told him, tell me when you get the dog ordered, how much it's going to be. And if you need it up front, then come see me. So we did. We went ahead and we bought the dog for the community, uh, for the police department. Uh, Sunday, about three, four months later, uh, I had a knock on my front door on a Sunday afternoon. I was resting in between services, and it was the police. And I answered the door, and they had this dog in the front yard, and they had uh, marijuana and all kinds of drugs hidden up in the trees and the bushes in my front yard, and they gave me a performance for the afternoon. And uh, we got TV coverage for it. But what it did is sparked the community. And one lady called up and said, I want to buy a, a bulletproof vest for the dog. Another guy called up and said, I want to give him, I want to uh, donate the concrete for the, for his uh, house, for the dog house. Uh, another guy said, I want to, uh, another company said, well, I'm going to give the fence for it. So the whole community got involved, but it all started with the church taking care of a need in the community. But that, I mean, how much is $9,000? It's not that big of a deal in all the scope of what my father owns. But we had people start coming to church because we were giving church. And at that point, we had seen many souls changed. And they would call my son to come and deal with families that were hurting because he had opportunity. They knew who he was and they knew us by name. So it, I mean, just reaching out and touching the community is where the church is missing it today. If they only knew, Jesus did not stay inside the tabernacle. Jesus walked the streets. He talked with the guys. He went to their parties. He, he ran up the highway with them. Uh, I like to think him and Peter and James, John, all the boys going from one town to the next was playing leapfrog, going up the road, having a good time, you know. Jesus was not stoic. He wasn't one of these stiff uh, neck guys. He was about his father's business, and that was touching people's lives. And that's what we felt we had to do. See, I, I had you tell that story on purpose because, see, the thing is, is when you're in where God's placed you, you're following the destiny that the purpose that God has for you. He brings an innovative ideas your way. He, he gives you these strategies. He gives you creative ways to not only just build the church, but also to reach out to the community. It sparked the community. I'm a firm believer that the church is supposed to be involved in the community, be involved and helping be an asset to the community. So of course, I'm getting into church stuff and things like that. But So let's move on a little forward. So you're serving at the church there, and things are going great. The pastor that you served under, John Norvell, was actually the district bishop at the time. He was serving here. Was that his second term? His second term, he was here. And so everything was going good. You had a, a prophet come to the church. I think he came to your church or somewhere and told you that... Uh, I may be getting the story mixed up, how you knew you were you were done there before you ever knew anything else was going to happen. You knew that your time in Aransas Pass was over, but you didn't know where you were supposed to be going. Uh, yeah, in fact, that was the uh, second week of June of, um, what was it, would it be 2010, uh, 2011 it was, 2011, second week of June. We finished with a Sunday morning service, and I was going home, and I just felt the Lord put in my spirit and said, you're done here. I'm going to move on, and uh, I told my wife, and she said, I don't think so. She said, uh, you must be depressed or have some problems. She said, I said, no. I said, I just feel the Lord told me 
that I was finished here. And she said, well, what are you going to do? I said, I don't have a clue. And she said, well, are you going to tell anybody? I said, nope, it's going to be you and me. We're going to have to pray and ask God to, okay, show us where we're going, what we're going to do. And uh, we went on. In fact, I didn't even tell my son because I was afraid if I told my son he'd have his desk in my office before I, <laughs> before I get to the church office. But uh, anyway, uh, we waited and prayed about it. And about two months later, my uh, friend, John Reville, who was uh, the bishop here, he just, I don't know, I mean, just got very ill one day and he just passed away right here at the headquarters. That was on a Saturday. And Sunday, Saturday night, one of the pastors of the district called me and said, um, Brother Jane, you do know Brother Novell just passed away? I said, oh, yeah, I do. And he said, well, I just want you to know God's going to move you into that position. I said, well, I don't know about that. I said, uh, I know how this thing works. So I said, I had no idea. And I, they didn't have a clue that I was, nobody knew I was going anywhere. But um, the next morning I was shaving and getting ready for church and my phone was ringing and, of course, I had quite a few phone calls that weekend, and it was a, a an evangelist. I had never had him at my church. He knew me. Uh, in fact, uh, the only way he really knew me was I met him twenty some about twenty three years prior to that at Brother Novell's church. Just hi, how are you type thing. But I had seen him and listened to him teach in Israel in uh, eleven when we first took over, and uh, or in two thousand ten when we went to Israel. But he didn't know me personally. But he, I answered the phone. And he said he told me who he was, and I said, "Yes, sir. What can I do for you?" He said, "Well, I heard about Brother Norvell. He sent went to school with him." I said, "Okay." He said, "By the way," he said, "I was uh, getting ready this morning. The Lord told me to call you and tell you to get ready. You, he, you're going to take his position." And that sort of hit down inside my spirit. One of those things. Whoa, dude! <laughs> I don't know if I want this or not because. I always said, you know, leading a congregation is one thing, but trying to lead pastors is like herding cats. You try to get them all in one bag at one time, and it don't happen, you know. Anyway, that's when we knew God was setting it up. But the funny thing was, is I had horse. I loved horses. I had my own uh, little, my own little ranchito in the backyard, you know. I had a couple acres, had my horses there, and built a barn for them. And uh, we were going through a, at that time, we were going through a major drought, People in Corpus area and around that area, on the, in the newspapers and on Craigslist stuff, they were selling horses. I mean, they were selling three, four thousand dollar horses for two, three hundred dollars. Just take our horse, feed them, whatever. We can't, uh, we don't want to see them die. And I said, Well, Lord, I said, if I'm supposed to take this job, I'm not just going to do it. Um, you're going to have to show me something. I said, I'm going to have to sell my horses because there's no room for them where I'm going, and uh, I wouldn't have the income that I was making as a, as a pastor. And I put it all on Craigslist, my saddles, my trailer, my horses, everything I had, I put it on there. I said, Lord, if you want me to take this, then you'll be able to sell my stuff pretty pretty fast. And that was like 4.15 in the afternoon by quarter to five. I had sold my round pin. I had sold my one horse and another guy wanted to come see my horse the next day. I sold that one the next day. Then nothing moved for a week. And the following Sunday, Saturday morning, quarter to six, a lady called me from Corpus and said, have you sold your trailer yet? I said, no. She said, don't sell it. I'm coming there. And she was there by 8 o'clock, and she bought everything I had, lock, stock, and barrel. She laid out thousands of dollars on top of my wife's hood of her car 
And everything she wanted, I said, $50, $100. She said, no problem. She kept throwing money on my day. Uh, and God cleaned me out in one day. So I said, well, do you want to try God again with another fleece? I said, no, we'll st stay with this one. <laughs> That's so funny. That's so funny. But, you know, it's, it's strange how when it's, a, when it's transition time, either there's one or two scenarios that I've noticed. Either you get kind of this discontent feeling or this divine discontentment or everything's great and all of a sudden bam it's time to make a change i don't know how god determines when he does what but uh, it was just interesting and so he led you here to the office and uh you've been it was 2011 that you came here of course we're now 2019 he's taken the organization and it was it was a lot like your church when you took it there it was not doing real well financially uh, financially, it was it was in a hole. They owed money to Brother Norvell's family, or, um, his wife, uh, Sister Marilyn. Uh, we owed money to them. Uh, there was no money. In fact, I didn't get my first paycheck for when I was supposed to. I got it two weeks after I was supposed to get it. And uh, we just had to believe God. It, we struggled for about three or four months. That, I, I took this position full-time in October. I was uh, asked to cover for the district and give the district time to pray and seek what they want to do from August to October. And then in October, I, I was elected to it on October the 10th of 2011, and I went from there. In January, I had a um, winter camp meeting. And in the camp meeting, I had a friend of mine uh, come and preach for me. And uh, we had it in the north and the south. And between the southern meetings that we had and going to the northern meeting, the Lord spoke to me and said, I want you to pay Marilyn off. Well, we owed, we owed her $14,000. And uh, I thought, okay, Lord. Well, he said, I want you to take an offering for it. And I said, well, Lord, this is my first time out of the chute, first time I'm doing anything district-wide. I really don't want to go in there and pull in for an offering. Uh, first time they see me and I'm doing my job. I forgot about it. And then the next day, he said, I want you to take an offering. I want you to pay Marilyn off. And I thought, well, okay, Lord, if this is you, then you'll bring it up some other time. But right now, I'm not interested. I don't want to do this. And it was the last night, the last meeting. Uh, the speaker was just closing in prayer. And the Lord said, I told you to take an offering. And I said, okay. So long story short, I took the offering. Uh, people started jumping up and coming up, and I told him, I said, one fellow, uh, one of our pastors now, he, he said, uh, Brother John, I don't know what the deal is, but uh, God told me to bring money with me. I was going to need it, and I got $1,000. I said, well, great. Just bring it up. If you have an offer, you want to come and help us pay this off, bring the money up, put it on the altar, and when, it's, when we get enough, it'll be enough. So my wife and Sister Gail Sanders, which was our district presbyter's uh, wife, they were on their knees up there counting the money. And they, uh, within 10 minutes, I had 15800 and some odd dollars. We were able to pay her off. And at that point, I, uh, the Lord showed me that uh, the reason why the district wasn't functioning was because we were, we were, uh, we were not tithing. The district wasn't. So I, I made the, uh, I, I just made a, policy we were going to tithe everything that came into this district and when we paid the previous bishop's wife off her spirit was perfect she said brother bob i didn't think that this could ever pay that but i figured if not god would supply it that was her spirit and that's why i believe why god allowed it to happen but then because i uh, was obedient to that god allowed us to take our district from the point of, of being 
down below zero to the today we're, we're prospering very, very well, but it's because every month the money that comes in, my secretary, she goes ahead and she takes 10% of that, and they put that over into another fund so that the district cannot use it, and we use that for helping pastors, ministers, and churches and the such uh, to keep the kingdom of God moving. If you followed this path, you started off as a little boy growing up in Pennsylvania, just going to church, being drugged to church a lot of times. <laughs> just through the, the cycles of life, he kind of stepped, walked away from God for a while. God brought a woman into his life that kind of helped draw him back in. And it's just interesting. One of the things I want you guys to realize is everything in our life, God the scripture in Romans says that God works all things together for good to those that love the Lord and they're called according to his purpose. And I believe that if, if we will take that whole approach, if we will say, okay, this is what's going on in my life. And there's been some some difficulties in your life. There have been some adversities in your life. There have been good, good times, bad times. But it's all led you to where you are now, to a, a position. And I, and I feel like that once once you ever leave this position, that he has another role for you that's that's even I think more of more influence it's uh it's more of an influential role than this I don't know what that is you can take that for what it's worth but I really believe if we will understand that God has taken us through where we are and we've not messed up his plans if things get bad it's not because we're necessarily out of God's will he may be trying to work us trying to get us to some place to our purpose and our destiny, redirect us. I mean, you were starving in Pennsylvania, and you said, well, let's just go to Texas. Not knowing that when you get to Texas, you're going to actually start getting into the ministry, start being an associate with John Norvell, then now you're actually the, the district bishop. I just I wanted you guys to hear from, from Bishop Bob Jane and his story, because I get to hear these stories all the time, because my wife is his secretary, and so I get to We'll go have dinner or something sometimes, or we'll go do some things, and I get to hear these stories. And I just wanted you guys to hear those, I, because God is just always directing us. He's always working our life. When we think it's just stuff happening in our lives, God's always working. He's always working in our lives, and our destiny is, is always paramount. He's always created us for some place, for a purpose. And there's, and there's not a—you don't ever arrive. It's always a journey, but— what you do in the journey is what God has for you to do. Do you have anything you want to say to wrap up before we finish? Or I just appreciate the opportunity being able to share because I love how God leads. Uh, you don't see the path. He said, no, he's led unto our path. When you start walking, he just prepares the way. And I don't know where I'm going to end up at, but I know where I'm going, you know. It's just exciting to be able to share that. and maybe I, I just hope and pray that somebody could hear that and saying, man, I've been running from God. And I, I know he's got a call on my life, and I don't know what to do with it. I wasn't even a speaker. Let me tell you, I told my pastor when I came home from England uh, and brought my wife and family home, I was working in the church with uh, the youth and stuff like that, and um, I told my pastor, he, I told him, I said, you can ask me to do anything you want me to do, but don't ever ask me to pray out loud and don't ever ask me to speak in church. And <laughs> here we are. <laughs> oh, that's that's hilarious. God has a sense of humor. I love that. All right, well, guys, thanks for listening. Be sure and subscribe to the podcast 
so you don't miss another episode. Also, if you want to partner with us, there's a link on the description of the podcast itself where you can actually give a monthly support on the monthly support. We've got people that do that. Uh, share this episode. There's a Twitter account now. It's called Discover You Pod, Discover You P-O-D uh, at, on Twitter. And then an email if you want to email me, discoveryoupod at gmail.com, discoveryoupod at gmail.com if you have anything you want to uh, ask me about any suggestions, any anybody you want me to interview, any questions, that sort of thing. I'd be glad to address those. So we look forward to talking to you next time, and we will see you later. Thanks for listening to Discover You with James Hooper. If you haven't already, please subscribe wherever you like to listen. You can also follow us on Twitter at DiscoverYouPod. Or you can email us at discoveryoupod at gmail.com. Discover who you were meant to be.